This is Paul. This is Sheila. This is Inez. The Power Threesome is here tonight to talk about the seventh episode of CBS All Access's The Stand. This one is called The Walk. They're getting less inventive with the titles. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I feel bad saying it like the last one was The Vigil. But like, we came off of like Fear and Loathing in New Vegas, and now we're at The Walk. Right, the next one will just be like The Show. Right. <laughs> like next the week's ending. episode. Right. Yeah, the ending. <laughs> Actually, this title reminded me only in name of another Stephen King book written under his one-time alias Richard Bachman called The Long Walk. If you have ever been a fan of you know young adult or YA style stories like Maze Runner or the Hunger Games or Divergent or anything like that. The Long Walk is basically like the template of those stories, but he wrote it 20 years before they did. And the, the concept is is very simple. It's just that every year, I don't know, span of time or whatever, they round up a boy from every state because this was in the stage of storytelling when you could exclude girls and no one uh, cared. Dad, I, guess. Dad I, I, guess. <laughs> I guess they did care, but they cared in silence. Uh, yes. And they make them walk from point A to point B. And the person who makes it to the end wins. The trouble is all that don't make it to the end are dead. Yeah. So if you if you lag behind, then there's a, a Jeep that will come by and just shoot you dead. And if you get too far ahead of the pace, that same Jeep will zoom ahead and shoot those kids too. So it's, it's a real cheerful story. Lord of the Lord of the Flies like, you know. Sort of. Sort of. You get to know these boys and you don't know who's going to make it. They all have different strategies. Some are better than others, but ultimately one kid makes it. Short novel. You can tell the bones are there for how all those other stories that came later would just kind of build on top of that skeleton and make little tweaks here and there. But basically the same thing is there. Like one kid to rule them all, that sort of thing. Other than the walking... <laughs> There's, there wasn't a whole lot exactly the same. I mean, Stu did fall, of course, but but just the title really resonated with me in terms of some relation to the rest of King's work. Did you notice who wrote this teleplay? I did. It was the prince himself. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mr. Right. Owen King. Owen King gets the sole credit for this one. It'll be interesting to see if the remaining episodes as we are in the last third of this nine part miniseries if they are credited to only owen or owen and steven for that last one well, i know that the king himself has um has writing credit on the last one it's not just the based on the book credit he also is listed under like the uh, the writing that's interesting the director for this one was vincenzo natali who has done a ton of work. His most famous movie is probably Splice, mostly because it's got Adrian Brody in it and it's got that poster of the kid with like the face that's kind of cut in half. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good work. He also made a movie called Cube, which led to a whole series of movies based on people that get pulled out of their reality and stuck in this prison cube and and they are forced to find their way through it without really any expectation that they should ever find their way out of it and there's traps and shit like that interesting movie but in the in the kingosphere he has worked on uh, lock and key 
which is uh, Joe Hill's show based on his his show, which is uh, the other King's son. And also he directed and wrote the uh, screenplay for In the Tall Grass, which was a movie adapted from a Stephen King short story that Netflix put out a couple years ago. Cool. So he's got some uh, he's got some King cred. He does. And he continues to work in shows like Westworld, Hannibal, Wayward Pines, The Strain, you know, a vampire show, uh, American Gods, Hemlock Grove. This is this is where he likes to work. <laughs> mm, this is his sandbox. <laughs> you could uh, remember the the warm remembrances that, that that Chris Fisher had in the interview when he mentioned Vincenzo. You could tell that these two probably could talk for hours about yes. their interests before ever touching on <laughs> work. On the work at hand, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Okay, so I have basically three divisions of stuff that happened in this show. I have everything relating to Trashy, I have everything relating to Boulder, and everything relating to not Boulder. <laughs> Environs outside of Boulder. Sure, yeah. That's pretty much what I have, yeah. Without having read the book super recently and, and committed it to memory, this stuff all felt very close to what I remember from the book. Does that ring a bell with you guys? Yes, I, I, I felt like it did a great job bringing me back through that experience. Yeah, it felt really true to the book. I don't know if the if there's a correct term for it in, in TV language, but having done a, a couple hundred podcasts, I've recognized this kind of show as what I would call like a setting of the pieces sort of sort of show where this episode advances the plot kind of nothing monumental happens per se i mean there's one moment maybe or two but but it's mostly about getting players or actors or characters in a spot where they need to be in order to get to the next really huge thing i agree with that this whole thing has been about that from the beginning, piecing together the pieces to get to where they are right now. And so why not continue the story out in that way? We know something big is coming. We got all of these hints. Yeah, this feels like the calm before the storm is not the right phraseology for it, but it's definitely getting everybody into an emotional state of mind where we know, like Inez just said, there was something big is going to happen. This feels for me like the emotional trough. Um, like we're at like the, if you have like a, reverse, a, a valley, or a valley, exactly. <laughs> so like if you have like a bell curve and you invert it, like you have like this emotional, you know, roller coaster that you go on. Now we're, we're in the trough. We're in the valley, literally. <laughs> Of like the emotional ride of these people. So things are not looking good. Things are bleak. But unfortunately, unless something monumentally drastic happens in the uh, in the, the coda, um, <laughs> you know, things aren't really getting better for a lot of these folks. So it's not to say that major things didn't happen. I mean, Mother Abigail died, but that seemed more like in service of getting the characters moving toward Vegas. Let's see, we saw the the house blow up again, and we saw uh, Randall and, and Nadine getting it on, and I'm sure that's a big deal. Overall, that would be probably the biggest plot point there. Bigger than Abigail dying, because she was already sort of, she was the reason they, they all gathered in Boulder, and the reason they had to, to kind of keep believing that there was some preordained thought behind why they why they should keep doing the things that, that, that she says to do, but sending them on their way was like i said like setting up the pieces so that so that all the all the actors are, are going to hit their cue in the next couple of episodes and 
and it's totally downhill from there. It was like we were at the very last part of the top of the hill now. <laughs> and then then the, the, the slide down. Right. It's like they're, they're taking their, their place markers, their cue markers for the next scene in this episode. One thing that I was looking for in this episode and really missed was the fate of Tom Cullen. I was really missing his presence here. There was no teaser of him in the in the, the 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 recap of the prior episode and he was a big part of the prior episode so i'm hoping that they have his resolution up next for us because obviously they need to resolve what happened to him uh, not that i don't care about tom because i love tom um and i definitely um hope he's having a comfortable ride amongst those bodies of his peers there as you uh, do <laughs> but i really felt uh, a lot of intentional space that they gave us in this episode regarding the journey. And I loved all of that space, the scenery, you know, the music, the sounds, this amazing imagery related to their transition. You know, you can't build an experience like that if you are trying to fit too much into this, you know, small amount of time. I'm forgiving it because of that. And then I'm just going to trust the writers that, that they're going to do do my man Tom right. Well, that is a trick when you need another character to come in and do something fantastic. You need the audience to forget about him for a little bit or her. And one way to do that is to just not pay attention to him for a little bit. So perhaps we have something like that to look forward to with Tom. Book readers may have some sense of what that could be, but knowing that there's a new quote-unquote coda to the story, uh, and I think Tom figures into the old coda, uh, I would count on that being different <laughs> this, this time around. We're in getting into uncharted territory. Like we, we all who've read the book and seen the 94 miniseries we we have an idea of what's coming but again like i feel like we're standing on a rug and at any point it can be like whipped out from under us i only wanted tom to come back in because i i just i worry about him <laughs> i worry what they're gonna do to him i worry that you know he's gonna get you know mixed up with the wrong people again so i just i like to keep eyeballs on my my main people and tom has become in this retelling of the story, Tom has become so endearing in such a way that I have not even contemplated him even in the book this way. I'm really fangirling for Tom right now. Do either of you in your you know lives outside the podcast? Wait, we have we have lives outside. Yeah, the I know that that they're that, that they're small and and scary, but um, very insignificant. That right. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine that you had full lives away from the microphone. Do you, either of you know the term going west as any kind of phrase that you might have heard associated with bad, just a negative connotation? Going west means get out of here and I hope things don't go well for you or anything like that. Um, I'm on the East Coast, so whenever people talk about going west, it's usually a good thing. Going back into history where like, you know, people would go west to find their fortunes, they'd go find their gold, they would find land, they would, you know, all of the, the trappings of the city that they are trying to escape would be found out west. So okay. for me, going west is a good thing from where okay. I live. I, I've always kind of heard it as a going west until I watched that movie Wagons East <laughs> because they found out the west was not as great. So that's probably the only reference. But what do you got for us, Paul? What why uh, what's up with this question? It's interesting. 
seeing as how you're smack in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Abigail sends the party west to Vegas, which, you know, that's how geography works if you're in Boulder. But having been a reader of Stephen King's in the Dark Tower universe, there's a phrase in that series of books the main character comes from a, a kingdom, I guess, where the show is run by what they call gunslingers. It's guys that carry guns. They're the guys that are in charge. It's a privilege to become one of these people. You earn your way into it. You, you might inherit your guns from like your father or something like that. But if you don't cut it, you will be sent west, per se. If, if the training doesn't work out for you, you'll even if you are a pretty good guy in other ways, you'll be sent west. And so there's this idea in some of King's work, but mostly in that series, where being sent west means you have failed and that you need to be sent to meet your fate in the in the shitty part of the world. <laughs> and uh, that's always tickled me because King is pretty famously from Maine and everything is west of Maine. <laughs> <laughs> so if he associates West with shit, uh, and from what I understand about your common Mainers' outlook on the rest of the country, it makes sense. <laughs> now, <laughs> I think we're all offended right now. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm uh, southwest of Maine. <laughs> have you been to Maine? I have not actually never never made the crossover to the border. Although it is, uh, we're on um, a national park like bucket list. Like our goal is to go to all the national parks. Caroline and I went there. We enjoyed it quite a bit, and would go go back. We enjoyed the people, but the people also had sort of a a very mature, funny outlook on themselves and their own reputation. I guess for kind of an insular <laughs> sort of like we like everybody who's already here and have and you know. <laughs> Has gone back like 200 years. If, if you're a, a right, a, you need to have been like a Mayflower settler to be basically <laughs> right. If 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 you bought the house 30 years ago down the road, you're still new to the neighborhood. <laughs> like that that right. kind of thinking, you know. It's a very New England kind of a way to think. Yeah, I, but from what if you read a lot of King, you get the idea that Maine pushes that idea further, <laughs> if it's even possible. Did either of you detect, or did it bother you in any way? Kind of the the games that they were playing with the timeline, re when Harold and Nadine left versus when the party of good guys left uh, and how they kind of intercut those things. One group left on a motorcycle or motorcycles and their part has to walk and their trip is going to take weeks, if not months to get where they need to go. The fact that they find Harold and she's just a little bit further down the road. She hasn't gotten to Vegas yet at the moment when they find Harold just doesn't make much sense to me since they rode out on motorcycles and they've been walking for days. Did that, did that bug either of you? Nah. <laughs> no. <laughs> go ahead. You know, I had to kind of get over this time kind of thing when I, back when I would watch the Game of Thrones because it would take the dragon transport system, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. You know, we spent all of those first seasons at a very, very slow pace that help, that where you feel that pain of how delayed everything is. And then all of a sudden the last season, yeah, they're just hopping around all over the place <laughs> and we're, we're knocking a bunch of stuff out. So I've kind of resigned now. <laughs> 
All right. <laughs> so I was just assuming that's gonna be that, that that's happening. I mean, they've already, you know, showing uh, a lot, you know, some technological advances of some areas. So you know, what's what's not to just predict that you can casually walk ninety miles in a day? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I try not to get bothered by that kind of stuff. It just threw me for a second. I was like, you know, when they find Harold and she's still on the motorcycle, it's like what? <laughs> I took it as a little bit different. I, t- I took it as like there had been time that elapsed so that like they found Harold and it was obviously a couple of days after he because he'd already been there for a couple of days. We, we learned like from the book and there was a couple of paydays there that could, uh, you know, illustrate that uh, there had been some time elapsed since uh, since the accident happened. Accident. You can put it in quotes if you want. <laughs> right. But I just took it that some time had elapsed from the time that that happened with Harold to the time that they found him because it took time for the buzzards as well to kind of like work him over as much as they did, I think. I just assumed, let's put it that way, I assumed that there had been some sort of like time elapsed between point A and point B. All right. All right. So maybe the better way to look at it is even though cinematically the two timelines are intercut, it's better to kind of understand that maybe Nadine's timeline was moving at at a very normal pace (laughs) getting her to new vegas well ahead of the of the party it's just cinematically they just needed to cut it that way yeah it looked like they did it almost like parallel but there were different timelines in in my mind so all right now my mind can be peaceful oh good i just want you to be able to sleep at night that's all Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of the paydays, uh, going back to a a comment that Inez had made much earlier in the season about the bag that Larry gave Harold and they didn't really share the paydays. In these scenes where we see Harold eating the paydays, the the logo was very obscured. You could see that it was the characteristic white wrapper with orange and lettering with the blue piping around it or whatever it is. Covered with peanuts. Right, exactly. But but they never really... (laughs) like spelled out and they never showed him like unpeeling a fresh payday or something like that ran out of budget for licensing i guess yeah <laughs> paid too much for alexander skarsgård and good music to uh... and, and, that, and that hair gel or whatever they're using to like make his hair defy gravity yeah <laughs> To me, it was satisfying to see, you know, the the little details about it. But if you are watching the show and you don't have that kind of context from the book, I don't think the show set us up to really kind of appreciate that detail. That detail right now, I think, is really just for the people who read that book. Yeah, I think you're right. Because the combination of what you noticed earlier and the obfuscation of the of the rapper, it, it is... It's, it's amounting to an Easter egg. <laughs> it only takes a skilled candy eater to know that those are payday wrappers. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. If you're not steeped in the lore. <laughs> I'm allergic to peanuts. So to me, I was like, oh, I see that bar of poison. Uh-huh. You're just like, oh, sorry, Harold. I can't help you. <laughs> what, There's too much peanut dust in your aura. Besides that, what an unfortunate food to be stuck with on your last hours. Cause no, that was Harold's go-to. Uh, don't peanuts make you want water in in a way that that other <laughs> other foods wouldn't? And and also like just the fact that when you crunch a peanut, even if it's you know dipped in gooey caramel, it still creates like a little like <laughs> you know in the back of your throat, <laughs> and he's already laying prone, like he's impaled in one lung. And... He's impaled exactly. <laughs> like imagine like some of that goes with his breath. Come on, Paul. Like, you've had a peanut before that's gone down the wrong pipe. Inez would excuse you from this because you have a valid reason not to know this. But I mean, like, 
And he does. He starts to choke a little as he's eating one of them. I'm like, I'm like this is the end I need for Harold. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Like, can we just take a moment to give a big, giant thank you to authors for this episode? Because this entire piece of Harold in the season was satisfying as fuck. Like, <gasps> yes. this, like, and, and then it was shocking and exciting. And then I thought it was over and then they kept coming back and it was worse and it was glorious. And then they left <laughs> and they came back and it was more glorious. And I just, I felt like that was the tree and I needed that tree. And then that to me, even, even though we already know how I feel about Nick's death in the story, I felt like it did all the justice in the world for avenging Nick's death from, you know, when you experience Nick from the book. So, um, I'm going to allow the redemption happen here. Bravo, bravo. I could not have said it better. I was saying, remember I said very early on, Paul, I was like, you know, Harold needs a better ending because he he got away too easy in the book. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he was impaled on the tree, I was like, yes. Um, <laughs> again, not a psycho, I promise. But I, I just needed a better, he needed a little bit more karmic intervention to, to right the wrongs and what happened with Nick and the sort of like the retelling of Nick. I'm not satisfied with it, but yes, what they did with Harold definitely righted a lot of wrongs. It felt like a birthday present. (laughs) (laughs) My my birthday's in June, but I'm accepting this formally. You know, just watching him go over the, the edge and my imagination again did not do that justice. Although I did much prefer this retelling because in the book, he hits like an oil slick and like the oil slick is attributed to like the eye of Randall, like the mm. evil eye that Randall sends out. And because Harold has time to ponder, like, where the fuck did that oil slick come from? Like, there ain't been a car through here in six months. So I like the fact that Nadine set him up so much better. It was so much more satisfying. It just it put like an exclamation point on their hatred for each other. And in her last final moment with him, she's like, she's like, screw you, pal. And she just sent him over the edge, literally. Do you think Nadine killed Harold on purpose as like preemptive protection because of how he seemed like he was going to be like threatening or so in their life in New Vegas? Or do you think that flag gave her these specific, very specific directions kind of in the same way that Lloyd reveals later that, you know, flag told them to the second or to the minute when they were to arrive? Do you think that this act of Nadine setting Harold up was of her volition or was this the will of flag? No, she says to him that, you know, it's better this way. I'm going to just say I'm not sure. I think it was mostly her idea. The way that she and uh, Flag discuss it later. And he says, yeah, that's fine. Kind of validates this idea that it was her idea. And she was just being like, that, okay. And he's like, yep, no problems. And plus, you know, he had that potato sack comment still festering um in her mind maybe (laughs) that was a mean comment but to kill somebody (laughs) over calling you a potato (laughs) am i that level of petty yes yes i am i'm gonna throw you off the side of the cliff he called me a potato well yeah i mean he was gonna say he's gonna get me one that makes sure you look like a potato sack so it's that was very personal so yeah i think it's valid that she would launch him over the side of a a hairpin turn I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Inez. I'm that petty, too. I'm that petty bitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah no. Although somebody is going to have to, like, give me, like, a, a, a tucking in at night. Owen Teague's face in this episode is going to give me nightmares. It, it just... 
his eyes, I didn't think your eyes could go that wide. I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a confession here. I stood in the mirror and I tried to make my eyes go as wide as his and they don't. but i need a gif like stat i don't say gif or gif of him with his blood-soaked crazy face screaming you bitch it just it satisfies so many needs in my life and i just i yeah yeah, i just need that so there you go confession into my weird mind fuck you harold yeah you crazy bitch (laughs) you know while he's dying and he fills out his diary with his last report there and he has this sort of like kylo ren style name flip into hawk i guess i can assume that that in no way redeems him for his his misdeeds in life oh i took the hawk as uh like eli from uh, cobra kai <laughs> yeah well well it reminded me of that that's yeah, for sure definitely oh yeah there's no redemption for him no no even even in those last words he's like i was misled you know he's there's still no accountability in it even in his dying moments he can't even be honest with himself yeah then now he all of a sudden he's hawk like fuck you harold just (laughs) just die already he's playing a victim right he's saying that he was misled it's almost like cult-like absolving himself saying that he was misled that he wasn't in his right mind that he was you know under the power of flag so that definitely is a cowardly way out as opposed to him just owning it because he's he said when he was on the walkie-talkie i do this of my own free will i am harold Emery lauder he says it of his own free will so the backtracking is now that he's had time to reflect and he's just like fuck i've been duped so why do you suppose Larry left the diary there? Because Harold's a piece of shit. <laughs> I think he... Wow, we're really earning the explicit thing tonight with me. <laughs> we have feelings. We, yes, we uh, do. We are steeped uh, in our feelings here. He feels betrayed. He's trusted following Harold's rapper's gave him a gift for it, was seeking him out right away. He held him high on a little bit of a pedestal in his mind in terms of like a good human being. And, you know, he knows and has seen the gravity of of the outcome of Harold's actions. And it hurts him. Probably does recognize like it doesn't it doesn't even matter. Like there's so many people that hurt. And uh, that was also really satisfying. I was so happy to see him, you know, tuck it back in there. I mean, he left the jacket and, and covered him up. So it's almost like, to me, it's like he got an answer that he needed from the diary that that in his last moments, that this confused person was trying to sort out his feelings. He didn't exactly take accountability in the most like adult sense of like, it was all me. Every choice I made, every action I made was me, period. Nothing else. That's it. He didn't do that exactly. But it's like he found an answer in there that he needed, but... At the same time, he was fine letting the legacy of Harold be that he was that crazy fucker that blew up Nick. And that was it. Period. No one else needed to know any more about it than that. I agree with both of you because I think he was betrayed. I think Larry felt betrayed, like Inez said. And then I also think that he didn't feel that Harold needed any further audience for his actions basically like by leaving the notebook with him to be destroyed by the elements the nadine and randall scenes were interesting uh that's a vastly (laughs) over word overused word in the podcasting uh, (laughs) world interesting it's a very diplomatic (laughs) word i think in terms of this scene (laughs) very open-ended all right so nuts and bolts wise he lures her with some kind of magic of some sort and she sees the penthouse but it, she's it, standing in the dirt and he's like don't bother with that 
You know, like, <laughs> eyes here, eyes up. <laughs> right. I, so uh, I, I think I think it's safe to assume that that was an illusion that he did make her see as best he could the penthouse so that he could the wheels turning on this operation operation impregnate Nadine. <laughs> we don't have clever operation names here in new vegas it's a very romantic spot mm. desert cold dirt i'm, I'm there oh can't turn into a demon oh i'm i'm hot <laughs> Doesn't he have a bed? <laughs> if he just would have waited, maybe sent the limo to get her. Uh, yeah. That might have been one maybe, solution. Maybe a little more comfy. Uh, but yeah, he's definitely just demonstrating that he is a very powerful being to, to be able, even if it wasn't perfect 100% of the time, that's still really like an awesome the display of power. Before we get to the deed itself, because that probably bears some discussion, do either of you have any pre-existing symbolic understanding of white roses, either in practice or in folklore or just anything that you come to associate white roses with? Purity for me. Uh, matrimony. And then in um, some cultures, it's symbolic of uh, death. Oh, really? Yeah, I spent a little bit of time looking up white roses and unfortunately... In the time allotted, all I could find were the symbolic meanings that various florists around the world wanted to put out into the world. And yeah, so if there was some sort of like uh, meaning that was like, and of course, you know, witches didn't make a sacrifice without including white roses, <laughs> that meaning <laughs> was not at the top of the Google list. However, um, purity and innocence were at the top so there's that element can also symbolize new beginnings and everlasting love which kind of knowing you know flag that's that seems partially true uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but you're right about the funeral also that was like i said these the definitions that i found were from florists they didn't want to go into many details about death they did say that it was an appropriate flower to include in a funeral arrangement but they didn't go further into saying why or what the history was as opposed to happy things like purity innocence that kind of stuff uh the reason i bring it up is obviously he had them everywhere he had, that's how he uh he, instead of uh reese's pieces for et there were rose petals for for, for nadine to get to his loving spot he does a lot of stuff in that spot that was also the dream sequence area ah. is that where he's meeting everybody yeah like that's like you know you know just lazy yeah, yeah it was like you know nick by the craps table way back when was in that spot larry where he's looking out and he sees like the lights of vegas in the background randall comes walking through those rock that rock formation it's the same dream sequence every like, time step into my office close that rock <laughs> or, or lay down on these rose petals depending on who you are <laughs> i guess the nature of the meeting is very different but yes yeah, yeah. since podcasting with my wife caroline she Whenever there's a sex scene where my instinct is to be like, and then there was a sex scene. Anyway, her instinct is to want to dissect it quite a bit as 
cringy as that makes me, this, this does feel like a moment when that might be worth doing in that we had a few things going on, including some shape-shifting, which is not terrific, I guess, if you're involved. <laughs> if, you're, if you're on the other side. <laughs> exactly. So does it make you uncomfortable to talk about sex scenes with your wife or with us or just in general? Just, I guess, in practice in general. So I don't have much experience with sex with demons, but I, I'll do my best. Okay. Not much. So there's just a little... Uh, I know there was a phase in college, you know? <laughs> there was that, right? The whole Catholic school thing was... A, yeah, exactly. Right. I had to go the other side for balance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I try to diffuse with humor, so... <laughs> All right. I guess the, the thing that stood out to me was just... This did not seem to be like a coupling in the in the sense of of joining two souls into one, as as much as it was a semen delivery system, and that was, <laughs> and that was about it. Oh yes. Well, it felt a little more consensual than well, how it was framed in the book, it feels like. Um, okay. Until it became, obviously, she's like, oh, there's something wrong. And that's when she looks up and he's he's obviously shapeshifted into this demon. In, in a way, like that sanitization of it, I'm, I'm better with because I just don't. I don't ever like any type of forcible sex situation. Like my husband loves to watch SVU and I'm just like, can we not? I just, no, I, I just hate that removal of power and I just don't like it glorified on television or in movies. So not to say that it doesn't exist, but I just, I don't seek it out as entertainment. I might be off in my interpretation of it, but it felt a little more consensual in the beginning, at least. <laughs> I think it, I, we all I, thought it was consensual in the beginning. We were following that very closely in my household. And then it felt like all of a sudden, like I would be revoking consent when I looked up and he's now a shapeshifted demon grunting above me. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. I thought that was a really shocking transition, uh, a little bit rude because it was a really <laughs> spicy scene. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. I've got no complaints about what I was seeing. And then until we, as I'm starting to kind of feel the transitioning with her as she's becoming more aware uh, and I can understand that it, it I, I did feel that they kept it, you know, like I'm still in this. I'm just realizing that something's hazy. So it did feel that consensual. I totally feel you there, Sheila. But yeah, then all of a sudden, like, holy fuck, there's just this random demon in between my legs. Like, I was having fun. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, it's like those memes. It's like how it started and how it's going. It's like, it just feels like that's what's going on here. Right. It's uh, like the little dog with the fire around him. It's like, this is fine. Right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah no worries. It's fine. Everything's it fine. Was, it was definitely a one way transaction, Paul. I think that your assessment is correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then, then I'm glad I saw it the same way that you guys did. The The use of, of sex on screen these days has become much more deliberate, um, where uh, Sheila and I were partially raised on movies where they kind of threw it in there all the time, <laughs> you know, in terms of gratuitous nudity. nudity like or, every horror movie also has to have like the hour-long sex scenes. <laughs> exactly. And, and now it seems that if they're going to include it, it's going to be a thing. It's going to be some reason. And, and there's something to be derived from what they show you. And it can be, like I said before, a little cringy to try to piece through and, and describe why that stuff's important. But these days, the fact that they're showing you a sex scene does seem, like I said, it's worth parsing exactly what you're being shown because it's done so infrequently now. 
I parsed. I parsed. <laughs> yep. I definitely parsed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man, that was crazy. Just seeing him in this disgusting black demon form, it just makes you curious what kind of being is now brewing in Nadine. Exactly. Uh, well, and as a TV watcher, I can admit that this past Friday, I watched the third episode of WandaVision, another uh, TV show which featured a woman going from zero to ready to give birth within the span of an episode. But that's done with such joy. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> very <laughs> and, different storytelling. <laughs> very different, exactly. And then we watched this, and did you notice, like, not only was she very pregnant in TV time, like minutes later, uh, although we discussed earlier that her timeline is probably further along than Stu and the gang's timeline. So it might actually be more than minutes. It might be weeks, but probably not months, probably not right. nine exactly. months. And plus she looked, I mean, in the 94 series, that actress, I forget her name. Um, oh, Laura. Yes, Laura. Sen, I'm going to murder her. Giacomo. Something. San Giacomo. She was in uh, Pretty Woman. She plays Kit. <laughs> Yes. I am showing my age. But all they did was like make her hair white, just kind of make her look haggard a little bit, like yeah. she hadn't slept well. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I mean, you don't when you're pregnant. <laughs> well, uh, but I mean, like maybe no, didn't I'm sleep with a you. I'm, days. Joking. I'm making a joke. But here, Amber Heard looked like ghost makeup or, you know, like risen dead makeup. Do you know who she looked like? She looked like Bella Swan from the Twilight series, Breaking Dawn, when she um, she's pregnant with the uh, vampire baby. And the makeup was very reminiscent of that. They made her look very gaunt, very drawn. She was heavily contoured. Sunk uh, in she, she, yes. cheeks and stuff. Yeah. Nadine, when she emerged from the den of Randall, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. Randall's office. Yeah, Randall's <laughs> office. <laughs> it was in session for a little bit. Now she's out. You know, we got the white hair. I was I was surprised that we got, you know, the white hair that Nadine in the book, her hair, as she moves closer to flag, her hair turns white. Um, so we got the white hair and she was just radiant. She was glowing. You know, she had the, the white flowing dress and she was just very beautiful. So I thought that was an interesting transition. Like she like fulfilled her purpose in her mind until she realized that something was drastically wrong with a wolf growl coming from her belly. <laughs> Not just because she hadn't had breakfast. <laughs> Right. <laughs> There's a TV show that I watch. It's called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And I won't go into details about the whole concept, but the idea is that it's about this horror writer who has these super lame, cheesy, like 80s style horror books. And one of the catchphrases for one of the books is something like, babies are supposed to kick, but are they supposed to scratch? <laughs> 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 and it, yeah, it kind of reminded me of that with like the growling sounds and all that. Are they supposed to scratch? All right. Well, I have run through the various things that I wanted to talk about. What do you guys want to talk about? Well, Trash Can Man, for, for one, he's just fulfilling. He's just ticking all like the crazy boxes that I expected him to. Again, this this part like felt just really lifted from the book. They did a really good job in setting up this scene because we saw this entrance way several episodes back where you see this the skeleton laying by the the, the fence of the entrance way to the base. Mm -hmm. So they did a good job of setting that up and then now it became like a familiar thing. So just how skilled and resourceful trash can man is at extracting a nuclear warhead from a bunker. It's it's something to be celebrated here. Like <laughs> I for one would not know how to <laughs> 
Would not know how to get a nuclear warhead out of a bunker, for one. The singing, the screeching, the the hugging of this warhead as he gets it out. I was just like, (laughs) the only time he's lucid is when he's with Randall, it seems. Like, we only saw that one shot really of him the last episode he's on a mission and he's 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 there for it he's another thing that i noticed with this episode was there's lots of black birds crows uh-huh. buzzards several episodes back because we talked about the birds being a harbinger yeah you know with larry and rita in new york city anytime it's like something bad was about to happen there was a black bird so there's a black bird right before trashy and that radiation meter is sky high uh that, that, what that's no big deal it's supposed no, to do that right? yeah well yeah it's a nuclear warhead it's got radiation of course it's detecting radiation his mad max suit is not very radiation proof so oh geez that's gonna have some implications yeah, there's some sure. swelling in that suit no <laughs> I mean, he's definitely used to it. He's got scarring all over his face, his body everywhere. And I imagine maybe he doesn't wear the extra clothes because they just are flammable and they're going to get in the way and and hurt him. Maybe it's just his that's his safety gear against himself. But oh, my God. But yeah, no, definitely kudos to him taking out that thing with in his loincloth and uh, some simple rope when I was watching this. I kept exiting the story in my mind and thinking about the actor. Like I, I'm, I was just curious, like who came up with the screeching because they have to take audio of the screeching like independently um, uh-huh. somewhere to kind of embed it in kind of the montage of his process of what he was doing. They just throw in the creepy like screeching in there, and I'm just imagining like going into work <laughs> and we're like we need you to. Can you, can you Thursday like, at ten? We need you to screech. You know, come in for the ADR, and we're gonna have you screech. Right. Is there any like origin story of like who created the character in this way? Because it's just so interesting, and then the actor like to take up on it. Like I, to my me in my mind, Trash Can Man is like playing the role of Trash Can Man, as, as well as like some of the attitude and creepiness from the kid. Uh, I'm just really loving how he's doing it because he's got tiny little scenes. But they're just so like goose. I just get goosebumps, and he's just creepy. Hey, Paul, can we bring Chris back on? Because wasn't he the director? He we got Trash Can Man last time out, right? Yeah. yeah. So maybe we can get Chris Fisher back. I can email him and ask. Yeah, um, like we have we have very specific questions, <laughs> <laughs> and he was just so much fun to talk to. There was certain elements of making the show that it sounds like were sorted out by the Josh Boone and and Benjamin Cavill and uh jill kill and nate lee as as they were pitching the show and and constructing the show and developing the show for television but then other elements it also seems like we're once the show was going we're going to be left up to the directors in charge of those of those episodes such as how new vegas would look or you know when certain characters say like bobby terry or something like that come in it wasn't going to be up to the people that developed the show to determine that it was up to the guy or the woman directing that episode to make that happen so since trashy didn't show up until episode six it is super highly plausible that chris fisher got to say a lot about the way that he came into being the actor ezra miller i only know from the justice league in which he played the flash a fairly coherent guy <laughs> so we know he can talk. <laughs> yeah, that didn't, you know, sing to himself with screeching or or anything like that. I don't know him from anywhere else. I I have a sense that he's a bit more of an actory actor, if that if that makes sense, than say James Marsden or something, who's more of a leading man type actor, more accustomed to character work. But that's just a guess. 
and you know character actors tend to dig a little deeper into that why is my guy this way kind of headspace that an actor needs to be in than leading characters tend tend to need to do that's all just conjecture though i'm just making that up it's still really interesting he definitely is owning the small amounts of screen that he's getting in my in my book i think he's super cool so so i wrote down that i felt like there's a leader hot potato kind of situation happening um here in this episode i know we know from the books about the journey but i also remember in the books being curious about this leader hot potato because of mother abigail's prediction i just had some feelings about how they delivered it if you did not read the book what are the those viewers experiencing so i just want to take a moment to say that i love mother abigail and there's no disrespect to anything uh, that she's done so far however all i kind of heard was she starts off and talks about that she messed up and then she tells him, oh, by the way, he, you know, I messed up, I made a mistake. And then I thought Nick was your leader, but it's gonna be Stu. But then they, and then they go on this journey and then Stu's like, oh no, it's not me. It's gotta be you, Larry. And I'm just thinking, okay, at this point, I would be like, are we sure Mother Abigail was right? Because she did admit <laughs> she was wrong <laughs> at one point. And she said so confidently, you know, she was gave this prediction, ominous, and unfortunately she died immediately. So there's no way they can kind of like discuss or talk about it. So what are kind of like your thoughts about how the story was told? And are you surprised that there's nobody really kind of like stopping to pause and question the logic? Or are we just making an assumption that maybe they have done that and just moved on just to keep going with the story well to some extent glenn addressed a little bit of that when he when he said something along the lines of when we all decided to meet in in boulder based on having this dream we just sort of bought into this idea that if she says it then it's got to be true enough Some, something like that and that was his own justification for being able to accompany them all on this uh mission regardless of whether or not it's truly inspired by some message from God or, or whatever, since he's an atheist, it was the Mother Abigail portion that made him a believer. I totally understand like that logic and, and why he chose from that point to go. But all of the dreaming and collection that everybody had was before this conversation, right? So from mm. this conversation, and she starts off saying like, I'm, I was wrong. I thought it was Nick, but now I know it was Stu. We see Stu later on say, I guess it wasn't really me. It's definitely you, Larry. That logic of of why like would you continue on without like some more like wait wait are we sure that she got it right because already it's wrong if we're seeing that Stu is fallen and he's kind of declared I mean just with the knowledge of what they have in that moment you know obviously we know where the journey's headed right but maybe I was just being goofy but <laughs> <laughs> Franny did touch on that when her and Stu are having a conversation when he's talking about the timeline the baby's going to be due around that same time she says do we really believe Mother Abigail like is she right. You know, Stu kind of dismisses it saying, well, we all dreamt about her and we're all here. So there was some of that. There was some of that pushback on Franny's part, at least to be like, is she really right, though? But then after Stu breaks his leg, nobody thought, is she still really right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Paul 
Paul, you pointed out, Glenn, what he said, and I kind of jotted down what he says, is there's no difference believing for which there is no evidence and refusing to believe in something for which there is overwhelming evidence. So he says, like, I have no idea if there's a God or not, but we're on this train to the end. Mm -hmm. That's not enough of a good reason <laughs> to, to like stake your claim to make your stand based on potentially faulty evidence. So just taking us back to the hospital scene after the explosion, right? Everybody's around there and it's the conversation between Larry and Glenn where Glenn tells him, it basically they reveals that they had to have been Nadine who was Harold's accomplice in all of this. In that moment, do you think that Larry thought was just thinking to himself, if I had just given Nadine the D, like she asked me, <laughs> could all of this have been avoided? Do you think that he like has reflected on that? Because we now know that's absolutely true and not a made-up circumstance in Nadine's mind when flags like you kept yourself pure. So she definitely held up her end of, of a very true bargain. Now we know that was true. What do you think Larry is thinking at this point? I hadn't thought of uh, Larry's point of view on that, but he has proven to be someone that does think about things as opposed to just continuing to move forward. This is my mission. This is what I'm doing. He does seem to be more introspective. I bet he did wonder that. I bet he did. All we got from him was like the handing the guitar over to Joe. We didn't get him having any sort of soul searching moment with, with him. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there. It just didn't make it on screen. I just felt like he gave like a little self-reflective moment as soon as they said Nadine as the accomplice. And in that moment, I just thought, was he thinking like, damn, I should have banged her. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe didn't take it to that extreme, but I did write in my notes that Larry looks disappointed in the conversation with Glenn when he's pondering like if there's anything of Nick left to bury and confirming that it was Nadine who had helped Harold. Like everybody was like, oh, it's Harold, Harold, Harold. But Larry's the only one who was introspective enough to be like, kid could not have done it by himself like he needed some help and and he figured that it was nadine there is this look on his face and i was trying to read it so i thought it was just disappointment in harold but i think you might be onto something that because larry has been on this journey like we met him when we first met him when the super flu was hitting he was just so self-absorbed and such a dick to everybody around him and he's he's really been on this journey of self-reflection and changing who he is at his core to become like the ideal Larry or at least a better version of himself so I think yeah I think he's probably shouldering some blame that he missed some warning signs there that he could have maybe had a different outcome if he just uh, you know given her the D like you said it does make um an argument for some of the people that are saying that that had they gone a little little longer maybe with the show and stuck a little closer to the book we might have gotten some of that because as book readers we know larry was m more than just a, a singer who had a, a drug problem he was he was actually kind of on a, on a very low swing in his life and that his popularity had had waned almost completely and he was completely out of money and hooked on drugs and all these other other things that were fairly negative in, in his life and then winds up being one of the the five council members and and going west to to new vegas that's a much larger, much longer, much more profound journey than I think we're going to wind up with in this version of The Stand. So I think 
with what you just said about give her the D, that would have been a little bit more obviously more clear had they given Larry the same kind of treatment that they might have given Stu, even though it was, I mean, largely Stu's story in the book. But, but still, Larry has quite a few pages. I mean, lots of pages for Larry that aren't really represented here. Do we know if Flag is aware that the five council members are alive and that Nadine's mission actually was not successful. I'm almost certain of it that he is. Because they banged out like it was a celebration. (laughs) You know, he was like, you accomplished it. You accomplished it as he's, you know, like, you know, embracing her. Right. Right, right. Dismissing Harold, but not acknowledging that, you know, because the mission was kill the five council members. And that was where her where her focus was until she let Harold change the scope. And in doing so, I think that's directly consequence of Harold's arrogance has contributed to now Flag's failed mission that could have, you know, had higher consequences had he actually taken out the five council members. I'm not 100% sure from this episode if it looks like Flag even knows that the mission was not successful because he's so focused on baby making right now. You know, maybe if you're having sex in the in the desert and you're going to turn into a demon midway, maybe uh, bringing up your your lady friend's failures are it's just too much for for one sitting. Very good point. <laughs> Yeah, I think you have a point because he did send Lloyd and the uh, the other miscreants out That's in uh, Inferno One, the limo to to rendezvous, right, with the remaining council members. So mission not accomplished, but just a small hiccup. Like we have ways to deal with them. I th- I feel like this is kind of the the tactic now. God, that's very good point. This kind of was feeling to me like, why do we put so much emphasis on saying we need to take out the five? We don't take out the five. What does this mean now? So I guess, Sheila, you're saying it's just about, you know, not every battle is guaranteed and we're just going to work around it in our in our next strike back. And I also think that he, like Randall was just happier that the old hag had died. At that point, for him, it was more triumphant to bring the remaining council members into New Vegas to see the empire with which he is now built and uh, rendering unto Caesar, right? The statue that's being built and the odd PSAs, I guess, that were being broadcast from the uh, the casino. The jumbotrons, yeah. You know, we tried it their way. Honk. <laughs> it was very jarring Obnoxious. to listen to. So I went in with my headphones. I'm like, what is he saying? And then, like, the little girl is there. She's saying that, you know, there was not going to be any prisons. He goes, no, there's going to be no prisons. And then there was that honk again, honk, where it, it would, like, display like no prisons and like tried it their way so we'll have the rat woman mc gladiator style fights to deal with the underbelly right of crime that that will ultimately play out so i think it was more triumphant for randall to bring them in to show them the other side like how the other half lives and uh from the glossy exterior yeah, it doesn't look so bad, right? But when you start to dive into it, it's very brutal. They see a ton of beatings in the street, right? One of the guys who's building the statue gets distracted for a second and he's whipped. The council members get to see this as well. But I think it's also Randall's triumph to bring them there. It was also such a treat to see more of the exterior of New Vegas. This is the the most that I feel like I've gotten a chance to really see. It was 
extremely intense seeing all of the individuals crucified down the strip, the whole environment, the music, the coloring of everything, the big old billboards, all of it just gave me some really big goosebumps, um, just how vastly different it is. And I really appreciated getting uh, an opportunity to see what the outside of it looks like since we already know, I've seen a lot of the inside now, so getting a chance to slow down, see the outside of this. Did we catch the song that the council members arrived into New Vegas to? I, I didn't, I didn't, I did not. The spell on you was earlier. So the music is is very well played. I pay attention because I'm doing the, the Spotify playlist, which is yeah. the same same name as this podcast, if you're listening and you haven't checked that out yet. The song was Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? So there's Larry's song. It's Larry's song. So it's done by Duran Jones and Mike Yogis and Nathaniel Walcott. So Mike Yogis and Nathaniel Walcott are scoring the stand and then Duran Jones did the vocals on okay. it. So it's the same iteration. So we heard this being teased out when Nadine and Joe meet up with Larry on the road. When he's about to start to sh- like show Joe how to play guitar, there's this bluesy version of Baby Can You Dig Your Man. It was very short. And all I really heard was Baby Can You Dig Your Man. I'm like, oh, they better bring that out. So I was able to shazam it, you know, very high tech things that I use here. So I'm hoping that it gets released because it is a bluesy, funky ass version. I really, really liked it. Like that is a very mean song to play to poor Larry walking in to meet his fate here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, you wrote one song. How about we play it for you before you go to your death? How about that? That's right. Maybe you'll get the royalty check right before. (laughs) <laughs> what could be your death. We're not sure what's going to happen. But We're not sure. We're in our territory. Sure. All right. Well, I guess that completes our coverage for the seventh episode of The Stand. Like I mentioned earlier, I think we're on the downhill slide now. This is, I think, where Sheila mentioned earlier, more unexpected things, especially for book readers, should start to happen um, as Stephen King's ending probably starts to tie into what we're seeing. So I think we're in, as Sheila just said, uncharted territory. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm not so beholden to the book that I need it to be a letter-for-letter accounting of that story because I've already seen it. I've already read it three or four times. I'm going with Inez's assessment the last time out. It's okay to have a different interpretation. Okay. I'm, I'm, that's my mantra. I'm like, this is okay. And I, all of the changes so far, again, we talked about this. It's been true to the spirit of the story. So I, I'm not upset at really anything so far. I, like I said, I'm really fanning how much they've updated Tom and they've given him such a, a more empowering narrative. I definitely need to see what happens with Tom. I think that's definitely where, the, I think that's going to be where they open up episode eight, actually. I feel like if, if I'm going to be a good TV watcher, I think they open with Tom. That'd be great. Yeah, to show how that is going to wind up, how he finds his way out of that. Because that was not a a slam dunk (laughs) that that he was going to get out of that. by no stretch. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we will be back again next week to cover episode eight. This is Paul. And Sheila. And Inez. If you could head on over to where you get your podcast from to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast to help other people find this show. That would be greatly appreciated, as well as five stars. That definitely helps other people find the show and like the show, hopefully, as much as you do. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. 
Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Ah.